Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Sarah. And I'm Erica. Well, we are in episode seven of a series called Christianity 101, where we take a look at what are some of the foundations of Christianity? Like, what are some of the things that as Christians, we should all be aware of? Um, So we've looked at such topics as who is God? What is faith? What are creeds? What are the different ways that we read the Bible? Who is this Jesus guy? And what is salvation? So where are we going today? So today we are going to get into something a little bit more practical about Christianity 101. We've been talking about faith and belief and all these kind of head and heart knowledge things. So today we're going to be talking about um, one of my favorite parts of the Christian faith, the sacraments where they come from, what they mean, what, what they symbolize, what they do, uh, and, and how many we have, because there's some debate about, is there one, is there two, is there multiple sacraments, and that's changed throughout Christian history. I want to say on the record, I love that your first take on this, Erica, is that this is a subject that is practical, because mm-hmm. I'm with you that there's something lovely and wonderful and like it's it's great that that we move not just to head knowledge and that there be this um, quasi mystical God in the common like there, there's something wonderful about that. But I also have to admit there's probably a lot of folks, even a lot of folks who've been lifelong churchgoers, who at the moment they hear the word sacrament, if they recognize it all, will go that's not practical. I want the five easy steps for how to have a successful marriage or the ten easy steps for how to get my kids to be you know faithful churchgoers. And I think it is wonderful that we are starting this with sacraments are practical are are not only like hands on practical but are useful and do something uh even if that's that sounds weird because to the outside world, this is probably the most bizarre you know, ritualistic piece of Christian faith that if they have any awareness of will give us, you know, the, the, the weirdest looks. So I think let's start off this conversation though with what are the sacraments, right? Because sacrament is such a churchy word. Yes. That and that I'm not even sure all Christians are gonna know. So this is kind of bleeding into that like, is this Christianity 101 or is it a little bit more in depth? Um so what is sacrament. And maybe there's a place to say that each of us in our traditions will have places that we're comfortable with basic definitions or ways of speaking and thinking about these things, but different branches of the Christian family tree will answer differently. Um, Mm -hmm. A a go-to that I often reach for that I think has pretty ancient roots. It's at least a a, a way that St. Augustine of Hippo used to talk, and he, you know, lived in the fourth century, something like pretty, pretty old. uh, And uh, Western, like Roman and Protestant uh, uh, Christianity and Orthodox Christianity still all have some appreciation of Augustine. Um, and his his language is a sacrament is a visible word. Um, the idea that there is something that is concrete and touchable and tangible, but that what the sacraments are is in a sense the way God's word is spoken to us and, and accomplishes something that the sacraments are again about God's visible words to us and that that definition i will readily admit has a uh 
helpful slant in a way that Lutherans will find it appreciative that this is about God doing something to communicate to us, not about our ritual that will impress God. And that frames the conversation differently than I need to get baptized so that then God will love me, or I need to take communion enough so that I can get my sin wiped away or something like that. But if the primary actor is God, or if this is a speech event where God is speaking, the arrow is always from God to us in that sense. So I'm going to own that bias, but that bias at least goes back to St. Augustine, and I would argue all the way back to the New Testament, but that's a place I would start. And I love that definition of the of, of what a sacrament is, mostly because in, in my tradition, um, we have communion every Sunday. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is such a grace-filled moment because I'm the preacher and I'm also human. So if I completely mess up the sermon and if I don't say a word of God's grace, to my people, there is still a moment in the worship service after I'm done speaking where God is still speaking and can give that word of grace and forgiveness and love. Um, So even if I completely mess up that Sunday, God hasn't. God still says, I love you. I forgive you. Here is a tangible thing that you can hang on to and feel my love and my grace. I I appreciate, too, that connection you made, because I often think in similar terms as someone who is in congregations that celebrate communion every Sunday, that that means not only that there's like God has an ace up the divine sleeve or in the times when I totally blow it, but also that 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 even changes how I understand what the, the point of preaching is, that instead of it's like the focus has got to be on, it's got to be some, um, uh, you know, wowing original thing they've never heard before like communion is the same every week there is no like in this week it's rye bread or this week you know we decided to use sparkling no it's just the the elements are this sort of common every week you know this is what it's going to be involved and i've never heard anybody say i get tired of the monotony of communion that the preaching word too is like over and over and over again it needs to come back to this is god's grace for you. Um, and we find different ways of saying it, but that means a sermon doesn't stand or fall on um, the cleverness of the preacher, but more on did God's grace get communicated? Um, and even when we blow it, that God's got an ace, an ace in the hole, so to speak. Another definition that I have heard for sacrament is that it has to be both commanded by Jesus mm-hmm. And it has to have a physical element. Yep. Mm-hmm. And and I think that, especially with that definition, that's when we kind of get fuzzy as to how many sacraments there are. Right. Right? Like Lutherans, like the ELCA lifts up, I would say two and a half. <laughs> like we lift up communion. You know, the Last Supper or, you know, Eucharist, you know, whatever you would like to call that thing that involves the bread and the wine turning into Jesus's body and blood and baptism. Mm -hmm. And then the one that always kind of gets fuzzy as to whether or not it counts is anointing of the sick. 
Okay. And I've heard others say that um, Confession of Sin is one of those places where Martin Luther himself sort of like sometimes speaks of it in sacramental language. Sometimes that gets swept under. Well, you know, it's kind of like what baptism is all about. And it sort of gets so like we're we're funny that way in that Lutheran's like, yeah, there's two official on the record sacraments, but there may or may not be two other half sacraments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anointing of the sick and confession forgiveness are those two like odd ones because it's kind of like well did jesus command us to do that right and like anointing of the sick oil is definitely a physical element but then with confession forgiveness what is that physical right element like it gets kind of dicey with lutherans as to how many there are like we don't even agree with each other yeah so yeah um, well, how about in, in your tradition, Erica, how, how, what's sort of a, a basic intro to how, how in the United Methodist tradition and Wesleyan uh, tradition sacraments are thought of? So we agree with you all with the two basics, the baptism and communion as being, you know, the, the physical, the commanded by Jesus. Um, the definition I've always heard of a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like that. That's very poetic. So, and, and, and I love that, but I listen to a Catholic podcast a lot and they, they distinguish like sacraments from sacramentals. And I've kind of like, I, I, I kind of like that and adopt that because it, it speaks to the, like the, the oil, the anointing of the sick, you know, that you talked about in the Catholic church, that is a sacrament. But like, for me, I would consider like, that's a sacrament, like the oil is a sacramental. Mm. It's kind of that outward invisible sign of an inward invisible grace, but it's not an official sacrament of the church. I have heard other traditions, uh, and I think in particular in the Roman Catholic tradition and maybe even in the Episcopal and Anglican tradition, um, making a distinction or a kind of hierarchy within the sacraments of ones that you get a clear from Jesus word on and they're for all people. Uh, and then other sacraments that are not necessarily for everybody. So if you come from a tradition like in Roman Catholicism or in um, the Anglican tradition, maybe even, I'm not sure the Orthodox Church quite quite uses these same kind of terms, but um, you'll find additional things like um, the ordination of priests, what's sometimes called holy orders, is a sacrament, and marriage is a sacrament, and then the anointing of the sick, uh, in particular when it's near time of death and it's called extreme unction which also kind of sounds a little bit like a heavy metal band um that so like there are these other things that are uh ritual moments and we're in in uh roman catholic theology something happens um but it's not necessarily it doesn't come with a physical sign necessarily and jesus didn't necessarily institute it so like there's there's even that recognition in traditions that that observe seven sacraments or five sacraments that there'll be well okay the jesus commanded us to baptize and to celebrate this meal called holy communion the other ones are stuff that some people might do but not everybody might do and even there there's sort of that recognitions and i think for me that's where in in my appropriation of being lutheran that's an important distinction that that um the sacraments are things that jesus intends or speaks for all of his community to participate in so i'm I'm not opposed to the idea of people marrying but i wouldn't say that that's a place where grace is communicated honestly that's a place where a lot of hard work is required um and I guess I'd say the same thing with ordination uh, to, to ministry. Um, 
I, I see that as, as at least as much about beginning, I'm supposed to do something as Jesus doing something. Whereas at communion, I just bring empty hands. And at baptism, I just bring empty hands. And I think that for me, that's an important piece of it, that if it's not just Jesus instituted it and Jesus, um, uh, there's a physical sign, but also that these are, these are moments where the visible word that's communicated is one of forgiveness or of grace or of mercy, not of me reaching up toward God. And I, I guess for me, that, that also helps frame the discussion why I'm, I'm much more happy or comfortable in baptism and communion and things that are around that. And then other things are lovely and fine to do, but I wouldn't call them sacraments. And to say that Jesus instituted these things, is not just that Jesus said, oh, you should do this. Right. Jesus participated in them. Right. And is the you know, origin like of them. Jesus yeah. was baptized. You know, Jesus initiated communion at the right. Last Supper. Right. These aren't just like commands coming from Jesus, but something that he actually participated in. Um, and I think, too, this is maybe not necessarily part of the, the definition I grew up with, but like that both of those are also um, reinventions or reboots or turning inside out existing structures mm-hmm. of ancient Israel's faith life. And that seems important that baptism has roots, not only in whatever John the baptizer thought he was doing, but that even earlier that the, the rites of, of ritual purification, the mikvah, that sort of ceremonial uh, bath kind of thing was a part of ancient Israel's life. And Jesus seems to do something that takes that imagery or that language or that practice and says, yep, it, it has bent this before. And now I'm giving it this whole new sense or understanding. And the same thing at Holy Communion that Jesus takes what was the Passover, the Seder uh, of ancient Israel and says, I'm, I'm doing something new. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that means that this is different from or distinct from what the, the other tradition, but also borrowing or using or reinventing. it. I think that seems an important piece as well. And again, that, that sense of these are for, all all disciples of Jesus, all Christians or something, that seems important too. Because there's other times where Jesus commands people to do stuff that we don't all say, now we're all supposed to copy it, right? Like Jesus says to the guy who's uh, healed of his leprosy, go show yourself to the priest. But we don't have the you know sacrament of showing ourselves to the priest to prove that we don't have leprosy. He sends his disciples to go you know two by two into villages, but we don't necessarily say everybody has to do that. And like, I, I think I'm, I'm reminded of that scene in the Monty Python movie, Life of Brian, where as the Messiah figure is running away, he drops his sandal and all the people running after him are trying to make this guy into a Messiah figure like, oh, he's dropped his sandal. What does it mean? And they try to read this, you know, symbolic, mystical meaning into a guy who just literally left a sandal behind. And I, I think that that's an important warning for me. Like, let's let's take the things that Jesus intends for his followers to continue in a certain way rather than. Jesus did this once. Should I do it too? Not necessarily. So then what do we do with something? Because I have a, a colleague and a friend that, from seminary who really thinks there should be a third sacrament in the Methodist church. And that's a foot washing. Because that's something that Jesus did command the disciples to right. do. Right. At the Last Supper. Yep. So the the rough answer that I'll give as a Lutheran who ritually practices foot washing and hand washing every year at uh, Monday Thursday anyhow is that while it is yes a something Jesus commanded for his disciples to do and it comes with a physical sign you could say the 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 word that is communicated isn't 
exclusively or primarily about God's forgiveness of us, but of our serving one another. And so like, this is, this is one of those places where at some point conversation about how many sacraments there are can kind of be inside baseball, you know, that it's sort of a, okay, uh, this isn't a sacrament, but it's fine to do is it, for a lot of people that sort of what does that matter then what we call it or not. Um, so yeah, I, I come from a tradition that every Monday Thursday, we offer foot washing and hand washing. And it has for me, it's one of those powerful ritual moments in our worship life. But for me, an important difference is that if, if, if I'm drawing a diagram, that's not primarily about God doing something for me, but about the arrow of us, for, you know, one for another. And the, the, the command Jesus gives is you do this for one another. Um, whereas at baptism and at Holy Communion, that's entirely God's claim, God's forgiveness, God's action to me or to us. Um, and I think that, that makes for an important difference. And again, that like, that gets at, for me, um, that that sacraments are about God's good news for us rather than us impressing God with our ability to perform rituals. Can it be a half a sacrament? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like once we're going down the road, if you can have a half a sac. I honestly I think the the question that you raise also is is sort of a cousin question to when we we talked about the Bible a couple of episodes ago and about the messy question of having a closed canon or how would you reopen it if somebody's you know found something whether it was hey i really like this book we should include this or if somebody some archaeologist would discover one of the long lost letters of paul like we don't have the mechanism as a fractured church to all say yep we should all add like, i think there's almost a closeness um of not adding more new sacraments in probably in the same way of like well how would we all decide how would we know the decision was something we agreed on and I, I, I know that there are there are Christian branches or traditions that are like, yeah, we don't care if everybody agrees with us on this. We're going to and there are, there are traditions that treat foot washing, we, whether they use that language or not, they might use the language of ordinance. Sometimes I hear uh, Christian groups talk about ordinances of Jesus and the emphasis there is this is something Jesus commanded us to do. Um, which again is sort of like close to the way I grew up thinking about sacraments. Is yep, Jesus taught us to do these things, um, but when the when when your language is this is an ordinance, it's just stuff Jesus commanded us, rather than a, a word from God in visible form, an inward sign of an outward or an outward sign of an inward grace, as you say, um, that that communicates grace and forgiveness to us. I think that that's an important like nuance. I think one of the things I, I find so um, powerful about these ritual moments, these these sacraments, and I'll, I'll just center in baptism and communion, at least because those are where, where my tradition lands, um, but is that there's something inescapably physical and that acknowledges that we human beings are physical beings with bodies and that being embodied is an important point of a part of being human, that we aren't just souls or spirits who contemplate ideas, but that this physicality, our need to be, um, to, to have touch and taste and smell, that that's all a part of it, and that those are means by which God communicates to us, that is mystical and mysterious, and I think we need that so that we don't turn Christianity into just an intellectual exercise or facts to be memorized. So as much as it's difficult because you can't reduce that to another you can't say well give me the summary of what communion means it's like you can't it's you have to experience it you have to receive it same thing with that with, with baptism um but that 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 keeps it from being just an intellectual head thing for me and both of them and what happens and how the grace comes to us is a mystery mm-hmm. and so like you know we've i think we've talked about this either in this series or another series how 
you can know a lot of things about God. Mm-hmm. You know, you can be able to quote scripture, but not know God, not understand, not be in a relationship with God, um, not let speak, scripture speak back to you. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the beauties for me about the sacraments is it's one of those things where you can't fully explain it. Yeah, we might we have our ideas, you know, and denominations vary on what right. happens at communion, what happens at baptism, all those things, but still how God works through those elements is ultimately a mystery. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you know, that we won't ever quite fully understand until we reach, you know, heaven someday. Um and, and I love that because then I can't control it. I can't manipulate it. Yeah, I think that's um, that's important. That idea that there is there is dimension of God that's that has to be mystery, not because we haven't studied hard enough, but because the nature of who God is and the nature of our relationship has to have something beyond the ability to to grasp or pin down. And I remember a professor in seminary once at one of our daily communion services saying you know, that even when he messes up the liturgy, because right. God is in charge of the sacrament, um, the grace is still there. Like, right. Right. I can say all the wrong words and do all the wrong things. And yet still the, the grace is there. Yeah. That I think is a really important, um, but also complicated notion that is, is, I think important for us to at least give a nod to, even though we might be headed toward um, beyond Christianity 101 if we go too, too far here, but that I come from a tradition and it sounds like what what you've mentioned in, in your seminary training as well would have this in common, that something happens in the sacraments and what that something is like, we might have different wording for it, but that this is not just like... Um, a, a puppet show this this isn't just like a, a a play thing but like something real and meaningful happens in this moment and yet avoiding the idea that this is mechanistic or magical there, there was a there was a time in like medieval christianity and this is part of what, what martin luther sort of uh bristles at in his writing when the celebration of communion became this like just by having somebody mouth the words in Latin, even if nobody understands what they mean, some, you know, the, the sacrifice of Jesus happens all over again. They even had a Latin phrase for it, ex opera operatum, like that by the work done, it is done. So by having the mass said, even if nobody understands what's happening or understands the words, the heaven points or grace or whatever is communicated through receiving it almost mechanistically, almost like magic. Um, and I, I, I come from a tradition that's like, there be dragons there. But on the other hand, a tradition that says there'd be dragons if we reduce this to just a metaphor, that if we say, yeah. well, baptism is kind of like the idea of starting over again, like, no, something happens. Like, like, like for me, mm-hmm. the closest referent is uh, the, the point when my kids were adopted and like a, a change happened walking out of that room. They were my kids now. And before that, it was it was not official that something public and meaningful happens or is communicated there. So it's more than a metaphor, but it's also not magic. It's not that with the the you know the the banging of the judge's gavel, you know, like trees started growing and flowers started blossoming. But like, nope, th- this this is for one thing. This moment accomplished one change of relationship, and that's that happened there though. And I, I think about baptism and communion in similar terms that it's mystery as the middle space in between just a metaphor or magical thinking. Mm-hmm. I I'm actually reminded of um. Uh, a book I read after a seminary uh, 
I had this the systematics professor who would like casually toss out book references in the midst of lectures. And I wrote down this title and thought, this sounds like one I'm going to need to read later on. So just on the off chance, I, I picked up um, J.L. Austin's How to Do Things with Words. Uh, it's like a, it was a book from the early 60s. And it's it's not a religious book in particular. It's a it's a book on performative speech, on the, the phenomenon in human language that there are some words where are the saying of the word does something, you know? So like saying, I promise you, you just did something, you accomplished something, or I swear, or, you know, you know, do you take this person to be your spouse? Like answering yes, that does something in a way that describing a ham sandwich doesn't, that there are some kinds of speech that actually accomplish something. And that, that idea, uh, or I forgive you, or I love you, the, where the thing happens in the speaking of it, that's often my go-to way of thinking about how the sacraments work. Something is happening, but it's God's word to us that is that is the event that's happening, not our word to God, I guess. So do we want to talk at least, well, I mean, I guess we have been talking about the two sacraments, baptism and sacrament and Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Um, and And I guess I'm wondering... Like, okay, so so the thing, the, one of the big, big differences between these two sacraments is communion, Eucharist, happens many, many, many times throughout mm-hmm. our lives. Like, mm-hmm. whether you're part of a tradition that celebrates it four times a year, or you're part of a tradition that celebrates it as often as possible, which usually means every time you gather for worship. But baptism only happens once yep and interestingly that's almost an inverse of the uh, ancient israelite roots of those that like baptism has roots in the regular repeated practice of ritual washing and um passover was this once a year story about a one-time event of god's deliverance uh you know from from slavery in egypt and the red sea so it's it is interesting how there's that kind of reversal that's going on yeah and maybe to add even further uh, the the weirdness of the difference, because Holy Communion is one of those things that happens many times over a lifetime, uh, you might not exactly remember what happened the first time you received, if, if that's way, way back in you know, the, the recesses of your memory, but you know what it's like because you keep seeing it, whereas baptism, especially in a tradition like ours that baptizes infants, um, means that this important thing that we've, you know, like had big theological controversies of is an event that I don't remember having happened to me, but I can remember doing it for other people. I can remember people I've baptized or watching other people be baptized. That's a weird thing too. It, it, it again, makes us have the difficult work of threading needle of something important happened, but it's not magic. And yet it's not important whether I remember that it happened or not like that. That's weird. And I would say there are probably folks who say that's inconsistent. That's why you should only have believers baptism, people who are old enough to choose it, or that's why baptism is just a symbol. And I, I get all those logical arguments. And yet here I land as someone who regularly baptizes infants and will, as we record and three days out from baptizing another infant, um, and yet uh, I'm convinced something happens there meaningfully that's more than us dedicating a baby. It's more about God claiming somebody, which means it's all about God's work rather than our even re- remembrance of it. And Steve, I think you just hit on why we do baptism once is that God claims us. Yeah. yeah. So when that happens, no matter what we might do, we don't need to be reclaimed by God. Right. 
right, right. And that's my whole lot. Yeah, exactly why I would. I'm. I'm. I'm there. Yeah. And but I think yeah. that's also why I agree with infant baptism, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. It's, again, it's God claiming us. Like we don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. Like it's God claiming yeah. us. It's not us claiming God. It's God claiming us. And yeah. for for me, that's also my whole way of understanding the language that some branches of the Christian family tree use in a different sense of being born again. I know, I know there are branches of the Christian family tree that lean real hard on that language from John chapter three about being born again, which I think the Greek can also bear being translated born from above or born anew or something like that. But, but even that idea, like there, there are Christian folks uh, with whom I want to be respectful, but who treat that as there has to be a moment where you did something to initiate a relationship with Jesus. And to me, I think that misses the whole notion of the metaphor of birth. I didn't do anything to get myself born the first time. That was entirely my mom's work. I, I get zero credit. Mom, almost all doctors and nurses, maybe some, I did zero work to make that happen. It was handed to me as a gift. And it seems if Jesus goes to the trouble of using that metaphor for relationship between us and God, that driving part of the metaphor needs to be there too, that birth is this thing we are given rather than something that we accomplish. And if we realize that in the way we are born and enter our our actual physical lifetimes, then maybe that's helpful way of understanding how baptism as being born anew is as well. This is God's gift. God, who's the one doing the birthing, not me deciding I want to be born. And so if baptism is a one-time thing, then why is communion multiple? And, and for me, that understanding, um, and feel free to push back on this or whatever, is because it's this constant grace, you know, that it, it's a reminder of um, Jesus forgiving our sins and, and covering our sins, like, um, you know, and that's something God only has to claim me once, yep. but I continue to sin. And so for me, communion is kind of a a symbol, a remembrance of that forgiveness. I would be in in a similar place as long as I would put up these guardrails. And this may be my nervousness of the high middle ages and the Lutheran allergy that's in me. Um, Luther got really, really nervous about the idea that Every time we celebrate communion, we're re-sacrificing Jesus to keep repaying the penalty for our sins over and over again. That was part of standard medieval theology. Um, and he says, we're not re-sacrificing Jesus. Uh, Jesus is present, but it's not that Jesus has to keep dying to keep paying for our sins over and over and over again. Um, and so I would be nervous about, oh, I sinned again. I need to get demerits taken off my person, you know, my permanent record. So I need to take communion and that will expunge my record again, but more, I keep needing to hear and to know I am forgiven again, but that, that is a little bit different than some transaction needs to happen over and over again for God to clear the ledgers. And I think that that difference is a, is, is a, it seems subtle or it seems small, but to me, that's, that's a big deal. Like if God really is this you know, celestial bean counter is like, uh-oh, Steve J walked again. He's got five more demerits. He's got to go through the ritual for me to forgive him. That again, makes God basically a bean counter, you know, an accountant who demands payments rather than I'm all, I've already been forgiven already for what God has done in Jesus for everything I have done, will do, am currently doing things I'm unaware of, as well as things that I am consciously doing that are wrong. And the forgiveness is already accomplished from God's vantage point. 
But I, who live through linear time, need to hear that notion and have it expressed to me over and over and over and again. The same way, you know, if my kid does something wrong and it is really wrong and they understand what a big deal it is and they need to know, have I forgiven them? I might say, I forgive you. And they might like come up to me five minutes later and going, really, do you really forgive me? Cause that was a big thing. I broke that really. Yes, you are forgiven. Not because I need to keep doing it again, but because they need to hear it again and again. I, I think to me, that's where I land. And that, that says something different about what God is like, depending on which picture you use. Mm-hmm. And that's why, and I don't know if I said this clearly enough, I see that as a reminder of that forgiveness. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because um, as somebody who comes from a tradition who does not believe that communion re-crucifies Christ again. Yeah. You know, that the, the the bread and the cup do not turn in the physical body of and blood of Jesus. You know, it's that reminder to me of that grace that has been given. And Lutherans have this wonderful traditional spot of, being completely paradoxical, or if you want to be less charitable, inconsistent, in that Lutherans are like, we're not re-sacrificing Jesus, but he is physically present there, fight me on it. <laughs> like, yeah. like this is one of those spots where Luther yeah. is willing to bang his, you know, like that, there's that story about him banging on the table, this is my body, hocus corpus meum, you know, even in the, in the, the old story between him and Zwingli, um, that he's convinced that Christ is present and that it is right to say that this is the body and blood of Christ given and shed for you. And not only this represents or symbolizes or helps us remember. Um, and yet Luther is also one to say, but we are not re-sacrificing Jesus to appease an angry God all over again. Luther, I, th- I think it's honestly more Luther's sense of the union of God's godness or Jesus' godness and Jesus' humanness. That like wherever, wherever Jesus, wherever, yeah, wherever Jesus is, Jesus' humanity and divinity are there in their fullness. So there's also a story of Luther, again, arguing with other reformers in the 16th century, um, saying, are you saying that you you chew up and swallow the very presence of God? And Luther's answer is, yes, Christ is present in my cabbage soup. Of course, he can be present in the bread and the cup of communion because God fills everything in all places. So Luther's hang up is not what, I mean, others were like, that just seems weird to say you chew on Jesus. And Luther's like, he's everywhere anyway. Luther did like to argue. Yeah. <laughs> and talk about cabbage. But in I guess the, the, the more subtle nuances of how each tradition talks and thinks about that probably is beyond the span of a Christianity 101 thing. I, I think that for me is part of the beauty of this is that the the ability to receive baptism and communion does not depend on your ability to diagram it. And that's, again, that notion of mystery to all this, that. It's not, once you understand it enough, then you're allowed to receive it. But more, here's a thing that you need, whether you understand how it works or not, and that brings you into a way of life, even if for forever it remains something of a, minist- uh, a mystery. And I, I think that's an important piece of this. And, and, and in fact, as a part of, at least when I'm working with kids and families preparing either for baptism or communion, we, ha- we have to make sure we talk about it and say, this isn't that now you're old enough and smart enough and you have the answers and now you've earned the right, but more now we can talk about it at least in a beginning kind of a way, but it's okay if there's always going to be wondering and questions and you know, receive it anyway, because this is, it's okay to live with that kind of mystery. In fact, it's good to live with that kind of mystery. I actually do not like having ages on first communion. Oh yeah. because because of that right like as soon as my kids were one which at that point we trusted them to be able to chew and swallow bread on their own and not worry about them choking um they started receiving communion 
because the way my spouse and I viewed it is that this is an outward expression of God's love. It's a gift. And just as we don't withhold gifts to children until they're old enough to understand that, oh, this is your birthday. So here's a present. We give them the gift because now they can safely chew and swallow. Right, right, right. The gift. They can safely chew and swallow Jesus. Coming from a tradition that doesn't typically put a age limit on when a child can take communion, I always encourage, um, in my current congregation, it's mostly grandchildren, uh, but I encourage parents to let their kids take communion. But I also respect that, you know, if you want to hold off until they're, but I'm like, they're never going to fully understand this. Right. Because I am a trained pastor who spent three years running a daily communion service for my seminary. And I don't fully understand it. Right. I have taken sacramental theology. I don't understand it fully. So how can, you know, what's the difference between me as an adult and a trained pastor taking it and this child when it comes to a matter of understanding? Yeah. I think that is an important piece of understanding that the direction of who's doing the work in these moments as well too. I mean, like that if this is about us doing something for God or the, a ritual that God needs to observe, then yeah, I need to know how exactly how it works. So I don't do the ritual wrong or cast the spell wrong. I mean, like, again, quickly you land in magical thinking, but if this is about God's communicating something to us, then yeah, I may not completely understand all that or in all of its richness or fullness, but my goodness, I don't understand all the points the preacher makes when I hear a sermon. And I'm hoping that I can hear at least something of this is God's grace for me. This has brought me into a new way of life, a new creation. And I might not get all the finer points of it, but I might understand some of it. And if, if that's how I'm willing to live with how preaching works, I, I, I feel in a similar way about how the visible words at baptism and communion work too. I guess that also means for me to circle back around that, on that notion of why do we do it, including infants, even if the infant won't remember, is that in the lived life of community, as I now am an adult and am watching and present when others are baptized, when I see somebody else baptized or when I'm baptizing somebody else, it's, there's this sort of like ripple effect back to me like, yeah, this this thing happened for me before I could do a thing as well. And it sort of, it becomes this sort of, um, it's like I'm overhearing God's message to the other person has spoken to me as well. Like, yeah, just like this baby right now is being claimed by God. Yep, that claim was spoken over me as well. And that's part of the promise we make to each other as a living community is when we're there watching and witnessing this happen and making promises that we're going to support the person who's baptized in their life in Christ, that part of that supporting them is as they get older will be the voices telling them this is what happened and this is the promise god has made to you and i know it i was there it happened that kind of thing that's part of i think what avoids magical thinking too that it's not just this ritual happened once in an empty room and nobody else knows it happened but it happens in the lived community and they become part of the institutional memory that tells me yep it happened and god's claim was spoken over you there's no booming voice from heaven that says no not steve he's a jerk nope it included me too Um, And that ongoing lived witness of the community is part of what makes this real. And I think that's absolutely there at communion too, that that's meant to be not just a me and Jesus moment, but an us and Jesus moment. I guess that suggests that this Christianity thing is always lived in community. Yeah, yeah, it does. (laughs) Maybe then that would be something wise for us to talk about in our concluding episode of this series 
uh, as we wind down Christianity 101 to talk about life in community together then. That sounds like a great plan. What do you think, chums? (laughs) Well, then uh, we will invite you to join us for uh, one more time here on uh, our Christianity 101 series here on Crazy Faith Talk next time when we talk about how we live this life together, not just in sacraments, but in all of our lives together as we discuss it here on Crazy Faith Talk. Yeah. Bye. This is